Hi, this is David Spray from the IC Disc Show. I just had a great interview with John Flatowitz, former managing partner of Briggs & Veselka, the largest independent CPA firm in Houston, Texas. Uh, in particular, uh, it was interesting hearing about when John joined Briggs & Veselka to start the audit practice at the ripe old age of uh, 26 years old and the philosophies that he had then that he still has today and that the firm has today. Uh, the firm grew from nine people in 1982 to over 300 people now. So it's an interesting story of how you grow a, a CPA firm and a lot of other client service lessons from there. I hope you enjoy this interview as much as I did. Hi, John. Hello. How you doing? Hey, I'm good. And how are you today? Doing good. That's excellent. So let me go ahead and, and get started. Uh, my guest today is John Flatowitz, the former managing shareholder at the CPA firm of Briggs & Veselka, uh, the largest independent uh, CPA firm in Houston. Is that correct, John? That is correct. Okay. So with that, um, why don't uh, why don't we get started? Um, what I'd first like to do is I like to to give our listeners just uh, some context for uh, our guests. And so you, um, I believe you grew up in Nebraska. Is that correct? That's correct. Omaha or a suburb of Omaha, I believe. I gr actually grew up in Omaha, Nebraska, and pretty much stayed there until I left to go to graduate school in Austin, Texas in my early 20s. Okay, so I guess you went undergraduate then somewhere uh, besides UT? Yes, I attended University of Nebraska for undergraduate school where I got my accounting degree, and then I went to University of Texas in Austin to get a master's in accounting. Okay. I, I did not realize that uh, that you uh, have an undergraduate degree from Nebraska, and that's UNL, right, in Lincoln, yeah. or were you in Omaha? Okay, excellent. And so then, when you graduated from UT, I guess that's what brought you to Houston. Yes, um, at the time, of course, everybody wants to stay in Austin. Beautiful, sure. Yeah, um, the jobs were all pretty much in in Houston. At that time, there were the big eight accounting firms, not the big four as they are now, and um, heavily recruited UT's master's in accounting um, graduates and um, decided to come to Houston and followed several friends that went to Arthur Young and Company in Houston. Okay. And then they subsequently merged with Ernst and Winnie, I believe. That's to correct. form Ernst and Young. That's correct. Okay. And I also believe that, am I correct, is my understanding correct that you are a first-generation American? Is that what it means, that you were the first in your family born in the U.S.? Yes. Um, my dad was originally from Poland. My mom was from Paris. And my two older siblings, my older brother Pierre, older sister Martine, were born in Paris. Uh, my next oldest brother, Frank, was actually born on the ship coming over here, and I was oh, really? actually, and I was the first one born actually in the United States, along with my younger brother, Glenn. Oh wow! I did not know that. I've just for the for the record, I uh, I used to work at Briggs and Baselka, and John was my primary uh, boss, so I thought I knew uh, I knew uh, a lot about your background, but it turns out. Uh, that there's a lot I didn't know. So, well, congratulations on being the first in your family uh, to be born in the U.S. Thank you. So you came to Houston to go to work for Arthur Young. And um, and so I guess, did you start in the audit practice? Yeah, when I was at Arthur Young, I was started in their audit practice side and spent about a little under four years there. Okay. And what year did you start there? Uh, I think it was 1978. Okay. So you're there from 78 to 82. That's correct. 
And then what to, what uh, made you leave uh, Arthur Young? What made you decide to leave? I was with, I was with Arthur Young, like you said, about little four little under four years out of college. I learned a great deal there, being with a you know international big big eight accounting firm. However, it was large. It was a large firm. I worked way too many hours and didn't really have strong relationships with you know both my clients and fellow employees that weren't great because we never saw each other, always on jobs. And I kind of, at the time, I wanted to go to a firm where I could make some kind of immediate impact, where I'd know everybody. And coincidentally, at the same time, Briggs & Maselka was a small tax firm looking to start an audit practice to become a full-service firm. And so it was the picture-perfect time. And so I learned of it and interviewed and got the job and started the audit practice at Briggs & Maselka. That's exciting because at that time, after four years at Arthur Young, had you even been promoted to manager or were you just I was, recently? I was, I was getting ready to be, but I was not. And, you know, to be honest, it was a little scary because coming to Briggs & Selka, you know, at a large big eight accounting firm, they have so many levels of supervision that you don't learn the whole picture right away or as quickly as you would as a firm at Briggs & Selka. So, yeah, there was a lot I didn't know, but, you know, my nature is to kind of, I love challenges, and that was a great challenge, and uh, I could honestly say there was no one at Briggs & Suck that knew any more than I did about audit, so that made it sure. a very Sure. When you look back on your, so you were probably about, what, 27 or 28 at the time? I was about 26, yes. About 26, Okay. So when you look back, are you like kind of scared for your your younger self in hindsight, realizing just what a big uh, challenge it was? Yeah, I was. And although at that time, I didn't really have a concept of liability. <laughs> you know, I was <laughs> and, you know, just anxious to grow things and make things happen. Sure. And all these years later, I am more conscious of that. So, yes, I was scared. Understood. And so when you joined the firm... Uh, how many people were at the firm when you joined? We had we had either eight, nine, or ten. I'd say around nine people at the time. Okay. And uh, and the firm started. What year did Briggs and Baselka start? Briggs and Baselka officially started in 1973. Okay, so they were they'd been in business uh, nearly a decade, nine years or so, and uh, and they. And I guess uh, Johnny Veselka and uh, Mel Briggs decided that they uh, wanted to start an audit practice. Yeah, they they were pretty much a tax practice, and they got together and decided they wanted to be a full-service accounting practice. And in those days, audit and tax were the two main uh, practices you had to have to be a full-service practice. Sure, sure. And... Um, uh, what was it about uh, the opportunity at Briggs and Veselka that was attractive? Because I mean, obviously, with four years under your belt at a big eight firm, you uh, you would have had a, a a lot of opportunities if you wanted to leave, right? You could have gone in house uh, in internal audit or as a controller, or you could have gone to you know a smaller C you know a smaller CPA firm that had an audit practice already. So, what were the elements that made Briggs and Veselka attractive? Well, like I was saying earlier, the thing that was really attractive to me is they didn't have an audit practice, and it was a chance to start something up and build it from scratch. Um, not saying I knew how to do it then, but, but it was it was attractive because they were committed to being a quality firm. Uh, if you've met Johnny Veselka, tremendous integrity, great reputation in the city, and I had an opportunity of a kind of a lifetime to start an audit practice for a quality firm, uh, and especially at my age. And so I, I just looked at it as, you know, someone was looking out for me. <laughs> and, and, you know, I looked forward to it. I'm not saying it was always easy, but through the years, uh, you know, built up the audit practice to what it is today. That's, uh, that is a great, a great story. So I, I guess in summary, uh, there was only one uh, opportunity to start an audit uh, practice from scratch, uh, 
and then it sounds like the icing on the cake then was just uh, your respect for Johnny and just the sense of connection you felt with the other people. It just it felt like a comfortable place to be. Yeah, I'd say so. I mean, you know, if I look back on it now, Johnny was a tremendous influence when I interviewed with him. Interviewed with Johnny Vasilka and Steve Awall, and I got a sense after that interview that they were down-to-earth, humble, despite having great reputations. And and again, with the culture that they had, the opportunity they said they would help me grow, um, how fast I wanted to grow, they'd help support it. Um, and they said, you know, if you do well, you have a clear shot to make partner one day because you're starting a whole new practice. And all of those things combined were very attractive to me. And you have to remember, this was in the early 80s when the Houston economy and the was bad, the savings and loan debacle, the, a lot of real estate problems in the city. So I kind of looked at it as a gold mine, you know, and mm-hmm. took advantage of it. And here we are. That's awesome. And uh, do you remember what year then that you made partner? I think it was. I'm trying to think. I think it was approximately, I think it was in 1989. Okay. Okay. And then, um, so at what point, do you remember at what point that the audit practice was as large as the tax practice? Did that take, was that uh, a couple years or did that take uh, a decade or was it, you know, 20 years? Mm-hmm. I'd say from the, obviously from the time I got here in 1982, it was probably 15 years, 15, 17 years. And, you know, primarily because for many years I was the, when I became partner in 89, I was the lone auto partner and probably at okay. the time five or six tax partners. So obviously, you know, the tax practice was going to grow faster, but at some point in time through the years, until we started doing lots of acquisitions, that was. The auto practice had caught up to the tax practice. Um, okay, that that is uh, that is helpful. So talk to me about your philosophy, the, you know, of building the audit practice. Uh, you know, what kind of people were you looking for? Just, you know, again, what was kind of your philosophy? Was it to be the, the, the cheapest audit in town? Was it to be uh, the most expensive audit in town? Was it to, uh, you know, just talk, talk to us about what your philosophy was. That, that's, that's easy for me. I mean, you know, my focus in philosophy, number one, has always got to be two things. It's got to be quality. You know, we have technical standards. The ICPA puts out generally accepted accounting principles and auditing standards, the SASs. And so, number one, you have to have quality. You have to know what you're doing. You have to study all the FASBs and SASs. Uh, that's number one. And the second thing that's critical, I've always felt and lived by this creed, is client service. Um, you know, clients expect calls the same day. Uh, clients expect you to be proactive if you have an idea that can help them. But even beyond that, uh, once we had that, and that took a while to get. Because I was I was alone in the audit department for several years, but once we had that, my nature, and I'm not sure where I got that from, but I like to grow things. So once I felt comfortable that we had a quality control system in place, um, I you know my goal was to get out in the business community, meet as many bankers, lawyers, insurance folks, and attend you know join boards of directors do speeches in the community or do whatever it took, you know, to grow the practice, um, which took a lot of work too. And it sounds like uh, that philosophy has really uh, been a very durable philosophy because from what I know about you and the firm's, uh, the firm's philosophy, it's, it's unchanged, right? Quality well, and client service. Yeah. I mean, we, we spent, for example, Sometime in the last two years, uh, we spent a lot of time, you know, defining our core values, you know, because 
if it's all about making money, it's not good. I mean, making money is critical, but you got to have core values. You got to you got to believe in something. You got to believe in the things that we believe in. We believe in number one, compassion, compassion for for employees, compassion for our clients, making sure we give back to the business community. Like I said, making sure the quality has always got to be there. Uh, making sure that you know we're proactive with our clients. Uh, one of my famous uh, comments to prospects and existing clients is: There's probably over 100,000 CPAs in the state of Texas. There's several good competitors out there, great competitors, and so you know we have to do something that they're not doing. We have to. We all say we have great client service, but we have to be proactive. We have to meet with them regularly, figure out what their needs are, how we can help them solve it, point out things that they may not know that could help them. And and it's been it's never an easy road. Different millennials, different generational type people that we hire, we spend a lot of time on culture, um, client service, soft skills training, technical skills, and I honestly believe that we still to this day have that same culture, the same core values, as large as we've become. And it's something that um, we believe in. We talk about in our board meetings and, and we and we actually do. That's awesome. And to give a context, you know, we talked about when you joined, there were about nine people in 1982. <clears throat> and approximately how many total employees does the firm have now? We have around 300 people now. Wow, that is just amazing growth. Are you aware of any other uh, firm in the state that has had that level of growth over that period of time? I I, I can't think of one. I, I don't know some of the firms. I know all the firms in Houston, I don't think, have had that type of growth. I can't say I know all the firms in the rest of Texas. But. Okay. So... Uh, so I really appreciate the the insight and kind of you know hearing the story of the audit practice from from the very beginning. Um, so what about from like when you started? So you talked about the '80s and you made partner in '89. Uh, you know now let's get into the '90s. What what were some of the significant events? That happened in the 90s. Was that the year that, or was that the decade that the El Campo office was opened? Yeah, that the El Campo office, I, I think, was open in 89 or 99. But some of some of our growth, it's hard to uh, you know to pinpoint. But I would say most of our growth, the majority of our growth through the years, have been organic, and it's been based upon the things that. You know, Johnny stood for our core values, the quality of work, fair prices, and trying to hire team players who who live our culture, serve our clients, and, you know, do the timely service, treat our employees well. And also, in addition, as you said, David, we opened up our Ocampo office, I believe, in 1999, had three to four, three to four small acquisitions prior to 2017. But through that period, it was a lot of internal growth. Um, I sincerely believe if you treat your clients well, you're proactive, give them value for your for what they're paying. Most importantly, treating your employees and and training them, finding out what their passion is. That all of those factors together uh, make you so valuable to the community and and and. And, you know, they refer their friends. Uh, all our referral sources are happy with the services we provide their clients. So when you take all that together, I would say that in total is the most significant factor of our growth. Now, okay. after, now after 2017, you know, from 2017 to current, we've done, you know, five additional major acquisitions. And, you know, those have all been... None that we approached them first. We were approached um, by those companies. And we've always said that we wanted to be a Texas CPA firm. And to do that, we needed to be in the major Texas cities. 
Um, we had every major international, national, and regional firm try to buy us out, I don't know, five or six years ago, and we decided we wanted to be a legacy firm. And we decided that to do that, we needed to be in the major cities, so we had heft in the resources um, to have all the technical resources we need, all the changes that are taking place in the CPA professional. We've all heard about the artificial intelligence, the you know, robotics and everything that's going to change the audit and tax practices, and the IT area and the uh, computer and IT areas that you really need to be up on and spend the resources. So when we were looking for acquisitions or they came to us, geographic location was critical. Um, I think you know that we have made three acquisitions in the Austin area in the last year and a half, two CPA firms and one valuation practice. We started our San Antonio CPA practice from scratch two years ago, and then we acquired a Woodland CPA firm, and also we acquired a Woodland-based IT forensics company. So, you know, again, we're looking for geographic location. The culture of these firms have to be right. Trying to mix a culture that doesn't have our core values would never work. Um, we were looking for complementary or new niche areas that we didn't have. Um, we were looking for strong young personnel that could be future partners. And then most importantly, to myself and my our successor managing partner, Sheila Enriquez, we were, look, were looking for growing innovative firms with strong leadership. Because as we open up in other cities, we don't know the markets as well. So we're counting on the strong existing leadership to have the same core values we have um, and, and to be innovative, to be growth oriented. And, you know, fortunately for our firm, we've been very successful with all these acquisitions. That is that is great. That is a that is really an, an amazing acquisition spree over just a few years. So I'm curious. Huh, do what? I hope it continues. But. Sure. So I'm just curious, um, why was it important for the partners of the firm to remain a legacy firm? Because it seems like the, you know, the easy thing to do would have been to have sold to a national or regional firm. Uh, what, 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 what was the motivation or the, the underlying cultural decision that made you all, uh, you know, make that decision to stay a legacy firm? It's a great question. We, you know, we were we received some tremendous offers that for some of the senior partners, such as myself, you know, we could have retired a lot earlier. Um, you know, monetarily, it was a great deal, less stress, less pressure. Um, but our firm, you know, we, we always make decisions for the best interest of the firm and all the partners. And many of our young partners, as we promoted them through the years, we promised them that we would be a legacy firm. You know, they they joined the firm. Many came from big eight, big six, big four regional firms or even local firms, you know, and they, they wanted to be with a firm that one day they'd have leadership responsibilities. They'd have the same chance, for example, that I had to grow something, to grow a niche, to grow a department. And so when all these firms approached us and we spent probably six months with nine or 10 of them, several days with each, you know, we had all the entire partner group listen to their presentations and, and everything else. And then we then we decided after a few months that we needed to make a decision, legacy or sell out. We did PowerPoint presentations on the pros and cons. Some people call it SWOT analysis. And we held a vote. And, you know, we our senior partners were hoping that we'd remain a legacy firm, but we really weren't sure what the younger partners we're thinking because it was one vote for one partner and to our surprise and, and happiness it was unanimous to stay a legacy firm and all the partners in the discussion said they want they want a chance to build this firm we think we could be a top at the time top 100 now we're thinking about a top 50 firm but and we want they want a chance to grow it prove themselves and you know we were we were all happy with that decision and the only caveat that we had going out of that meeting was we need to be in all the major Texas cities and grow enough to have the heft 
to keep up with technology, the robotics, the artificial intelligence, all the efficiencies that and, and bring the right people in-house that we need to compete. Uh, because I hear so many of our competitors that are smaller, several that were been surprised have approached us that, you know, they just can't, they don't have the resources, they're scared about the future. And, you know, we've worked real hard to make sure we have the best people in all areas, whether it's administration, audit, tax, consulting, and, you know, I think we all made the, the wise decision. We have a super group of young partners that uh, can't wait to see how they're doing in the next five years. So. That's uh, that's awesome. Yeah, I remember you told me probably more than a decade ago because it, uh, uh, you know, we're both both of us being in Houston, we're familiar with other firms in town, and it was and it wasn't hard to notice that you know some other firms that. Uh, you know, 20 years ago were larger than Briggs and Veselka, but grew at a much slower growth rate than Briggs and Veselka. And now Briggs and Veselka is, you know, uh, larger, maybe even a multiple. Um, but one of the things that you you told me, one of the reasons the growth was so important was because you had these great young uh, rising stars that if you didn't have growth, you would lose them or you would make them have to wait uh, for a spot to open up to make partner. And I always found that to be really interesting, especially when I've seen other firms that literally have told people uh, or that I've I've heard rumors to the effect that, uh, yeah, you're, you have everything it takes to make partner, but we you need to wait till a partner retires till there's a slot. So, so could you just expand a little more on that? And first of all, is my recollection correct on that conversation? Yeah, that's. It's interesting you hit the nail on the head because I've always attributed our growth to a, to a philosophy that when I took over as managing shareholder, you know, the tendency for most CPA firms and some of the established senior partners is, well, if we make a younger partner, we'll make less money. There's more ways to split the pot. I have never mm -hmm. felt that way. I felt exactly what you just said, Dave. Number one, if you don't make partners, young partners or young people that are qualified to be a partner, you're going to lose them. And secondly, if they're doing real well and you make them a partner, they're going to go out there. They're enthusiastic. They got more energy than the, than someone like me being a lot older. And so our philosophy has always been, since I was running the firm, that we're going to make as many partners as we can. And as, and I can't, I don't want to mention names of firms, but I remember it was, I don't know, somewhere eight or 10 years ago, we were about the same size as two of our competitors in, in the city of Houston. And now, like you said, we're, I don't know if we're twice their size or something, probably two or three times. I believe that the difference is in that period of time, like it was an eight or 10 year period, I think we made 10 or 11 new partners. And I don't, well, I don't know exactly, but I think in one of our competitors, they made zero partners. And the other one, I'm not really sure, but it couldn't have been more than one or two. And I have always said that I believe that the, especially the partners we made, I saw the results. Every year, our existing partners made more money. The younger partners, you know, after two or three years, they built their books up. It was as large as some of ours. And, you know, it's, it's a way, number one, like you said, to keep your talent, because who would stick around to a firm that's never making partners? You know, they'd look around right. and say, well, I'm not going to waste my time here. And, and and that's not always true, but generally is. And that was one of the, the philosophies. And, and I'll be honest with you, like I said earlier, I wasn't sure I was right, but it's something that I just believed in. And over the years, you know, it turned out to be right. And I, I just believe in people. And I think if if you believe in the people and you give them that chance, 99% of the time, they're going to perform for you. That's, uh, that is really a refreshing attitude. I, I appreciate your, your candor there. Uh, so, hey, just for, for the record, uh, what year were you elected as managing partner and how many years did you serve? I, you know, I believe it was in... And I may be a six months or a year old. I think it was in 2009. And in that year, I think I had done a two-year transition before that. 
with Johnny Veselka, whenever you have a new managing shareholder, we go through a two-year transition. And I think I took over in 2009 officially after that two years. And then in July of 2018, last year, I stepped down and Sheila Enriquez uh, is my successor at the firm. Okay. So that's a that's a, a long time to be leading the ship. And so if I'm just doing my simple math, there was you all had a lot of organic growth during that time with uh, you know some acquisitions near the end, right? Oh yeah, we were. Yeah, unfortunately for myself, I had some health problems last year. I think you're aware of, and you know we were the transition was supposed to last until October of 2019 this year, um, but after. Being in the hospital for a while, Sheila was temporarily running the firm, and I saw some great qualities in her. And, you know, we were in the middle of several acquisitions. We had the hurricane. We had the new tax law and several other things that were going on. And I guess I was so impressed. And my philosophy has always been, like I said earlier, that, you know, if you have young talent and, and they're capable of doing a great job, you know, the best thing you can do is promote them as quickly as you can. And based on some of my health concerns and what I saw she did when I was out, it was quite obvious to me that for the future of this firm and the success of this firm, that she needed to be running it. And so called a board meeting when I got a little bit better and, and made it happen. So she's been running the firm since July of last year, 2018, and doing a great job, just a super job. Yeah, she's a she's an impressive uh, individual. So, just out of curiosity, what are what are some of the reasons that that you believe that she was chosen as your uh, successor as the managing partner? Hmm, interesting, another great question. You know, Dave, you knew Johnny Vaselka personally, and sure. and you knew the entire business community, all of us. Johnny Vaselka had tremendous integrity, and you know when you were around him. You knew he was honest. You knew he was integrity. You knew he was humble, smart as he was. And, you know, so when I was thinking about who could be my successor, I was thinking of our executive committee members. And there were, I can't remember, four or five or six at the time. And I, I, I spent a lot of time thinking about who could be, who could really run this firm with the core values and have the qualities that I really think it needs in the future. And so after a lot of scratching on weekends, I came up with four things I was looking for. You know, number one, I needed someone that was growth oriented, innovative. Um, secondly, proactive in changing our firm from the compliance aspect to more of the consulting, the IT, the robotics, data analytics, um, uh, IT, uh, cyber risk assessments, and, and several of those things that we know are the future of the CPA profession. The compliance, the audit and tax will all be always be a core of our services, but the high margin areas are more in the consulting areas. And I needed someone that understood that, that was keeping current and all that. And then the last two that were even more important to me is, and this is so difficult with people being emotional and all that, is I needed someone that was fair and balanced to everyone. And for example, even if you know Sheila or I do not like one particular partner for their personality, but they lived their core values, they did a great job for the firm, they were a team player, you know, you need to respect them and, and be fair to them. And not everybody can do that, but she could. And the final one was no ego, team player, and to be humble. And you know, and I felt like of all the people I was considering, she was the only one that had that. Now, I could tell you all the other qualities she had, as you've probably seen, you know, she's very eloquent. Um, you know, people just love being around her just like they did Johnny. But these four were the one were the four things that I thought were important to our firm at this at that point in time. And she had all those qualities. So, Yeah, so let me just make sure. Yeah, let me make sure that I uh um are you still there, John? Yes. Okay, yeah, I heard a, a beep and wasn't sure. Um so the the four things you were looking for, growth oriented, 
proactive in uh, uh, you know leading the firm through uh, evolu- you know through an evolution due to technological change. Uh, the third being fair and balanced, and then the fourth being someone with no ego and a team player and with uh, humility. Was that did I capture that? Yep, got it. Excellent. Yeah. Well, I would say from my uh, uh, experience of spending time with Sheila, I would uh, certainly agree. And, and interestingly enough, on that, um, you know, I had noticed recently that the managing partners of all of the big four firms in Houston all have female managing partners. And so this isn't really something I've, I've paid attention to. I just happened to notice it. Um, you know, is this a, is this a, a trend that's been going on for a while? Uh, uh, and if, you know, if so, you know, do you have any, any thoughts on, on why that is? Cause it just seems, interesting when for so long, you know, there were no female managing partners and then suddenly all the forms have female uh, partners. And I know I'm, I'm kind of asking your, you know, your opinion here. Yeah. I mean, this, this is just an opinion. This is not based upon any facts, but you know, it is true in the last few years that the, the remaining big four accounting firms and even some of the regional firms all have seem to have female managing partners. I mean, the, the obvious, reason is, and I don't know how many years, but maybe the last 10, 12 years, the majority of accounting graduates have been from women, not men. If you go to, you know, University of Houston Bauer, I don't know, 60 or 70 percent of accounting graduates in the last several years have been women. So eventually, you know, the numbers are more favoring them to rise up to become partners, managing partners. Um, Oh, interesting. I wasn't aware of that. But still, there, you know, I, I still think in some of the local firms, although the trend's changing to a lot of female managing partners, but, you know, it's a little different than the national firms. I still think there's a lot of, um, you know, men managing partners still. Um, and that may be because some of them are hanging on <laughs> into their 70s and some in their 80s, believe it or not. But, you know, hopefully that'll kind of get balanced out in the future. Sure. Okay. Well, well, thanks for, for that. Um, what, uh, what would you say? Um, uh, there's a couple questions I want to ask, but I'm also sensitive to our, our time. Um, what's one unique thing about the firm that most people outside the firm are not aware of? If, if anything that comes to mind. Something unique about our firm that, that maybe know, isn't just super, you know, well known. Yeah, I would say, although it, you know, I don't know if if this is the case at other firms, but at our firm, one of the things that surprised me actually in the last five years is we're an extremely diverse firm in terms of our personnel. Just like Houston is one of the most diverse cities in the country as far as you know people. You know, I've learned that we speak over 20 different languages. And oh, really? Yeah, I don't know how many countries we have represented here. And it, it was kind of a surprise to me because, you know, if I go back more than 10 years ago, I would never have imagined that, you know. And, and but looking, you know, I was talking to our business development manager about a year or two ago, and he said that's, you know, we speak over 18 different languages. I don't know how many, 20 or some countries we have people here. And it's really helped because, you know, whether it's Hispanic, we have, I think, three or four Mandarin-speaking partners. You know, when when a lot of the business community, um, you know, is as diverse as it is, when they, when they have people that they can trust and be co- comfortable with that are, you know, their same culture and everything, it really helps. And... I don't know how many opportunities I've had where, you know, at, one of them asked me, well, do you speak Japanese? <laughs> and I said, nope, not even close. But but it, it really helps in, in the relationships. And that, I guess that's, and again, I don't know if we're unique in that, but I thought that was unique about our firm. I, I would sense that that is unique. I know we actually uh, share a, uh, a client that's owned by uh, Chinese uh, people. And the uh, and 
the tax partner for that engagement is one of your tax partners who you know speaks Chinese. And I uh, I remember because they were a client of ours before they became a client of of Briggs and Baselka, <clears throat> and I didn't even know they were looking for a new firm. But when they announced that they had selected you all, it made perfect sense because of uh, your your partner Shen Shen, and, uh, and so I can imagine where you know that cultural connection they have and the fact that this you know company is uh you know active in in china and um so, so yeah I, I can see where that can be a real uh, a real asset because i can imagine some of the other firms in your space uh, i wouldn't be surprised if uh, if none of them had uh any chinese speaking partners we also have interesting in the the, the asian community we actually have uh, one of our audit shareholders is fluent in Mandarin. And of course, Shin, as you mentioned, and Forrest, another tax partner, both also fluent in Mandarin. So we, you know, we have a large Asian practice also because of them primarily. Sure, sure. No, that, uh, that makes sense. Um, so I'd like to shift gears now and talk about... Um, you know, the Briggs and Maselka philosophy of referring clients to service providers other than Briggs and Maselka. You know, the, the firm has always had a reputation of making introductions to banks and other service providers that, you know, perform, perform services that the firm does not. And, um, you know, and, and I assume that the firm, you know, historically has not been compensated for such referrals. So with that in mind, you know, why do you and your partners invest the time to to make these introductions when there's no benefit to the firm financially? You know, one of our core values that I always keep referring back to is to make sure we provide high quality, you know, hopefully proactive and effective service to our clients. And to be honest, we do not always have the resources or capabilities, you know, to help our clients and all these things that can benefit them. So we spend a lot of time looking for high quality service providers, most of the time in Houston, you know, that can help them say, for example, save taxes, better learn, better loan terms, uh, other valuable and, and necessary services that our clients need and expect from us. And as you well know, we don't we we don't have the capability and we don't do IC disk or some of the things that you do and you know the cost segregation that others do or R and D or some of these other things. So we you know vet pretty hard um, these outside vendors who can help our clients and it's not about you know us always getting the money. It's about making sure our clients get the best possible help they can to to do what they need to do or save money or 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 structure better and so a lot of times we have to look for outside service providers and you know we we've done well over the years to make sure that whoever we're recommending to our clients are high quality people they have the same core values we do great client service and they know what they're doing so mm -hmm. it's just like a natural thing to do so it sounds like when i flip back yeah, would you believe I already have four pages of notes? Uh, when I flip back to or look back to the first page when you talked about the philosophy back in 82 of quality and client service. So it really sounds like what we're talking about here is just a, a subset of the client service. It, it just sounds like it's just a, a natural uh, part of the client service. Is that, exactly. is that right? No, that's exactly right. Okay. So um, how do you decide when to bring a service in-house, either organically or through acquisition? Hmm. Do, is it just when you get to the point that, you know, you've referred out, you know, a uh, uh, you know, hundred projects for a certain area that you think that you think, well, geez, you know, maybe uh, with that level of volume, you know, maybe it would make sense to develop that in-house or would it be like a specific client request or what, what, what kind of goes into that? thought process. Dave, I think that's part of it, like you said, where, you know, you're you're outsourcing so much revenue that you think, okay, you know, we can do this and we can keep the revenue in house. But I think that another more important part, at least 
the way we think here is, are the people that we're outsourcing the services to, are they providing the same high quality service, the same responsiveness to our clients that we would expect? And what we've traditionally and historically done is when when the outside service providers are, we so, we see no need for us to get into that area because our clients are being served. Um, they know we recommended a quality person, so it's okay. But it's interesting that you bring that up because in the last two years, uh, one of those situations happened. We, and you know, obviously I'm not going to mention any names or anything, but of we course. were referring tons of work on what they call the SALT cases, sales and use tax, because we didn't we didn't right. really have the expertise in house. You know, every state in this country, every municipality, they all have different rules and regs. And so whenever we had a situation where the state was auditing one of our clients or clients would call us and say, hey, do I need to pay sales tax on this? And all this was before the Wayfair decision that happened recently. But, you know, so we we referred it out. We started getting comments from our clients in the last couple of years, you know, various, all various partners who brought it to my attention and saying, hey, they're, they're not responsive. It's been six months. What's going on? And, you know, so it got to a point where we had a board meeting and, you know, we started saying, hey, do we need to find someone from the outside to start an in-house practice? And we did. You know, it, it wasn't, yes, we were giving up a lot of revenue, but the real impetus of this was the lack of quality service that the various outside vendors that we were sending to our clients just wasn't working. Service wasn't there, too many complaints. And so, and, and that was our salt practice. We, again, I don't know, somebody's looking out for our firm, but uh, a, a gentleman named John Cooney, who headed up Price Waterhouse's salt practice in the Houston office, he had just retired. I think they're, they make their partners retire like in their late 50s or something like that. And one of our partners had met him at some function or somewhere, and you know, the conversation developed. He he was and still is at his peak, and you know, we got him in house, and you know, it's it's just been wonderful. No complaints. In the first year alone, it's on our internet. He saved our clients over twenty five million in sales tax savings. Wow! And that wow. Combination of you know during sales tax audits inform our clients, no, you didn't you don't need to pay sales tax on that. You know, it's a cumulative type number and that was within one year. I haven't seen what he's you know, he's been here a little over two years. So but more important than all that is, you know, we know we have someone that cares about our clients, that's giving quality service. We've got no complaints. And not only has he done that, but we're our clients are talking to other companies in town and he's going out and, and helping them and what I've learned, because he's been in front of some of my clients, I used to think sales and use tax was a pretty simple thing, and it's so complicated. Each industry has different rules, and it seemed like it would take a lifetime of learning to know all that. And, and he's done such a wonderful job. And, you know, as an example with the that Wayfair Supreme Court decision, which basically, and I'm not an expert on this, but basically said, you know, for many years, if, if you didn't have a physical presence in another state, uh, you didn't have to pay sales tax, and you didn't have to file mm-hmm. the forms. But everybody complained about internet, online internet sales, and those were exempt. The Wayfair decision said no longer, so each state is coming up with rules to say, hey, if you do a certain amount of internet dollars online, we're going to tax you. And so he's he's been in high demand lately, because you don't want clients to suddenly, after two or three years, get these huge bills, or if they're trying to sell sure. their company it's dug up in due diligence. So, you know, John's been just a super asset to this firm. Uh, His client service and quality are exceptional. And, you know, again, we're just, that was a case where we brought someone in-house for the first reason you said, because we were sending literally tons of money that we could have had. But more importantly, we kept getting complaints. And, you know, now it's another area we don't have to worry about. It's a growing area of the firm. And, and there have been others through the years, like international tax, but those are the reasons that we would take it in-house. So I think there's a great learning lesson there. So so th- that I think 
all of us in the service business can um, can can uh, take notice of, and that is that you, you had uh, you know either you know one or a collection of of salt firms that you were referring business to, and here you are a rapidly growing firm, which I would assume would mean the referrals you're sending them are growing, the number of referrals you're sending them are growing, and they had this really this golden goose that was just automatically growing that all they had to do to keep it going was just to to feed the goose and take care of the goose and apparently for whatever reason they took their eye off the ball and the goose flew away so i guess it's just a reminder to never uh get complacent in you know serving both clients and your uh you know centers of influence for uh, for new clients yeah that that's true, and you know that applies to us too. You know, um, I always I always try to remind our managers and seniors and actually fellow partners that you know we're only as good as our last job. You know, you got to keep up with all the technical standards. You know, be in front of your clients all the time. Make sure that they're getting their needs answered and solved. And you know, it's a constant. You know, you're in this like us. We're all in the service business, and we need to do it. And you cannot ever become complacent. Sure, sure. Well, wow, I can't believe how fast the time has uh, has flown. We're already uh, 50, uh, 50 minutes in. Um, so um, let's see. So you mentioned you've got offices in Houston, El Campo, the Woodlands, San Antonio, and Austin. And, uh, and you'd mentioned you want to be in all the major cities. So that would imply that the Metroplex, you know, Dallas, Fort Worth, is on your radar screen. I'm not going to ask any any specific questions as far as you know things you're considering uh, doing, but it's but is it fair to say that that uh, that you expect to have an office in the Metroplex at, at some point? That's correct. Okay. Um, and uh, uh, so you talked about that that uh, I think the HBJ article with Sheila, she was talking about that the firm was nearly, uh, you know, in the top 100. And then you'd mentioned that you've now kind of, you know, set new goals of, of trying to be in the, the top 50 at some point. Um, if we were guessing like five years from now, how large do you think the firm might be? Or maybe, you know, give me a, I don't know, what, what are your, your thoughts there? If it was, if if you had 600 people five years from now, would that surprise you? Uh, maybe that'd be a better way to phrase it. If the firm was twice as big five years from now, would that surprise you? Actually, no. I mean, we we update our strategic plan every year. We have a, an organic internal organic growth percentage, and we've always exceeded whatever our plan is. Plus, we have an acquisition strategy. Um, and both Johnny, myself, and Sheila are eternal optimists, by the way. Keep that in mind. Yeah, yeah, I, I've observed that. I believe that based on our past organic growth, uh, the expected future growth, expected acquisitions, and more important to me, and the super leadership team that we have assembled, um, you know, I can say their names. You know, Sheila sure. is our managing partner. Jason Sanders is our tax department chair. Adam Dimmick is our audit department chair. I'm really excited about that leadership team. It's at least compared to me, it's young, it's smart, it's technical, it's it's innovative, and I see a firm in the next, you know, five to ten years at least doubling in size. If you know, I believe we'll be bigger than that. But a lot of it depends on what acquisitions you do. There's a lot of factors sure. that you can't control, but yeah, it would not surprise me at all. Wow, that is great. And speaking of your your uh, partners, so how many partners does the firm have now, or shareholders? I guess technically, I'm going to say approximately, so I don't get killed on this one. I think around 32 or 33. Wow, that is really uh, that's that's really impressive for how uh, uh, you know because your partner growth has occurred along with your employee growth. Um, so, um, 
you know, one of the questions I had that, that you answered already was, you know, as the firm has, has grown, uh, what are the, some of the things that have not changed? And, and I think you know, you'd mentioned that, the, the amendment to quality and in client service. Um, is there anything that we didn't cover today that you think we should uh, have talked about or that you'd like to mention? Yeah, uh, one of the other things that I must add, I think I mentioned it briefly answering another question, but would like to emphasize, uh, you've got you've to believe in your people. And you've got to, it's a different era than it was 10 or 15 years ago. You've got to make sure that you offer the best training, the best opportunities. You've got to figure out what each individual's passion is. You just don't put X number of people in audit, tax, and consulting. Each person's unique. They have unique talents. We spend a lot of time trying to figure out what their passion is, where they can help the firm the most, benefit themselves the most. And that's sort of on the technical side. On the people side, we want to make sure that just like I get up every morning and I love coming to work after almost 40 years here, we want to make sure that all of our people, it's an environment where they feel they can speak up, their ideas are listened to, but it's also a fun place. And to that end, one of the things I think Johnny and myself and Sheila are most proud of is we've gotten best places to work either from the HBJ or the Chronicle. I think we're going on years 13 or 14 now. And But we do a lot of things. We do a lot of employee activities. We spend several days out, all of our employees, out in the community. We pick like 10 or 11 charities in the community. Um, Groups go out to those charities and, and volunteer for an entire day. And that's important to a lot of our people. Uh, as an example, I'm a dog lover, so I go to bark and let the dogs out of their cages and walk them. And, but whatever that's the passion, awesome. the person, and I know you are too, Dave, but, but, but whatever, you know, so the community charity, making sure it's fun. We have a lot of outings and we do a lot of fun things at the firm and we offer all those. So I think, you know, that... I've just seen it work through the years. I've seen people do things like, for me, as a partner, come to my house, drive 50 miles on a Sunday to drop off something so I don't have to. And, you know, keeping your people happy, challenged, I think that's it's so important to the success. And I believe that we make that effort, and it, it really helps the firm grow. So I that want to is, emphasize. That is great. No, I'm really glad that you did, John, because uh, – uh, it's it's really clear that you have a a commitment to the firm and your clients, and I mean you've always had a reputation as as having tremendous uh, client and uh, employee uh, commitment, and uh, and it's just uh, it's just really great to kind of hear it right from your mouth your your thoughts on this and your your passion and conviction on. Uh, the type of culture that you've tried to build and, and hope continues even after you retire is just really um, uh, uh, clear that it's just really uh, is that it's really heartfelt and, and genuine. Yeah, well, you know, I mean, I I have to say I love the firm. I care about the firm. You know, I also care about the profession. You know, and and the profession took some hits. You know, in the public eye over the years. So, you know, quality is important. Um, you know, like I say, giving back to the community charity-wise, giving back to the profession. You know, many of our CPAs are very active in the Houston CPA chapter, the Texas Society of CPAs. And, you know, it's all about giving back because it's been great to our firm, this city, and this community. So, and I wanted to plug, well, plug in. Dave, can I put a ahead. plug in that allows <laughs> You know, I've known Dave for, gosh, I don't know, 20, over 20 years, more than that maybe. And, you know, Dave's one of our service providers that we don't feel like we need to do anything in-house because Dave was with us for a short while, but, you know, he's one of these uh, outside service uh, folks that does a great job of quality, timely service. I know in the past I could call him up no matter what hour I say, hey, my client needs this, and he's on it. So I'd like to put a plug in for, for your business, too. So. 
Well, John, that was very kind of you. You didn't need to do that. But, but in all fairness, every, I mean, almost everything I know about client service, I've learned from you. So, so if you're, if you're happy with the way we treat your clients, it's because, uh, I learned it from you. So, so thank you for, uh, for, 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 for showing me how, how to do that. Well, John, I really appreciate your time today. I, I know you're, you're busy. And I do want to just, could you just share your, your contact info? The phone number is the main number, 713-667-9147. Is that right? Correct. That's correct. And your email address is? It's jflatowitz, F-L-A-T-O-W-I-C-Z, the at symbol, V as in boy, V as in Victor, C as in candy, cpa.com. Okay. And so if somebody just wants to reach out to you, you know, directly, just say hi, they can do that. Uh, sure. But what about if somebody is, uh, you know, somebody's interested in, you know, exploring a relationship with your firm, you know, somebody that owns a business that's looking to change CPA firms, would you rather they reach out to Sheila or would it make sense for them to reach out to you? What what would you prefer? I mean, either either way is fine, you know, if. One of us is always here in, in the firm, so they can call me, they can call Sheila. We also have a business development gentleman named Bill Pensek. They can call in any one of us three, and we'll make sure we get them to the right people. It may not be me. It may not be Sheila. It may be whoever has the expertise and the industry experience to help those people. Great. Well, that sounds awesome. Well, John, thank you again for your time. and. Uh... And uh, you know, best of luck in the continued uh, growth of the firm. Thank you so much, Dave. Appreciate it. All right. All right. Bye. Bye. There we have it. Another great episode. Thanks for listening in. If you want to continue the conversation, go to icdiscshow.com. That's ic-disc. SHOW.com. And we have additional information on the podcast, archived episodes, as well as a button to be a guest. So if you'd like to be a guest, go select that and fill out the information. And we'd love to have you on the show. So that's it. We'll be back next time with another episode of the IC Disc Show.